Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Every year, because it's a fantastic, special annual occasion for us to remind one another about the reason for the hope that we have as a community. The resurrection of Jesus is the pinnacle. It's the climax of the story that shapes the heart of this church family. And so it's a story that we don't get tired of telling, which is a good thing, because it's a story that we tell all the time. We talk about this a lot. And that's actually by design. If you were to come and visit me in my office here at the church, you would come and one of the first things you would notice is that over the years I've collected and printed out a bunch of uh, different printed cartoons and memes that say something about ministry. And every one of them is different and some of them are funny and some of them are profound. But one of the first cartoons that ever made it to the collection, I don't know if you'll think it's funny or profound, but it's this image of a seminary professor training a group of preachers. The subtitle says minister school. And the professor says this, makes this statement, says, remember this fact, there is only one sermon. Your job is to find different ways of saying the same thing week after week. Some of you are thinking, oh, well, that's why he's been saying the same thing, you know. And, and for a preacher, there can be some, some comfort in that, knowing that the target is not moving. I mean, really, my job is to come every single week and to talk about the redemptive, merciful, graceful love of God. But I also recognize that it can be difficult as a listener to stay tuned in when you're hearing the same story time and time again. In fact, we talk about this so often, and we talk about this resurrection story at Easter so consistently that if you were here with us Easter last year or the Easter before that or any of the Easter's before that, you heard us talk about the significance of the resurrection. It's the reason that we're gathered here today. But really, we're hearing the same story over and over again. And sometimes, sometimes as a listener, that can be problematic. I recognized this recently. A couple of weeks ago, I was on a flight headed to a ministry conference, and sometime between the time they closed the cabin door and when they started to push us away from the gate, the flight attendants took their positions in the aisles to conduct the, the pre-flight safety briefing. Right Now, you know exactly what I'm referring to. You've probably heard it before. In fact, many of you, I'm sure, have traveled enough that you could recite much of the pre-flight safety briefing on your own. It's that presentation where the flight attendants stand in the aisle spaced out from the front to the back of the plane and they teach the passengers about all the little things that hopefully would come in helpful in, in case of an emergency. You know, they talk about how do you buckle a seatbelt, right? Which sounds like information we ought to know. I mean, it's the kind of information that we use every day in our cars, but an airplane seatbelt's a little bit different and so they get up and they show you. They use props. And they tell you, this is how you buckle your airplane seatbelt. 
on Southwest, they're probably going to make a joke about how you ought to know how to buckle a seatbelt by this point, you know, but they're going to tell you about this. And the reason they do is because if they don't, somebody inevitably is going to put it in here backwards and they're just going to think, well, that must be how it fits and it's going to be wrong and they're going to be wearing it on the wrong place on their hips or on their stomach or something like that and it's just not going to be the way it was designed to be used. And so they get up there and they demonstrate how to use an airplane seatbelt and how to tighten it and all of that. And then they start getting a little more scary, a little more serious. And they start bringing up, well, what happens if suddenly the cabin gets depressurized and we run out of oxygen in this place? And you're thinking, well, that, that, that's not the ticket I bought. You know, that's not where I wanted to go. But they say, well, don't worry. We have oxygen masks that are going to drop down from the ceiling. And when you see this oxygen mask, they show you they're going to mess up their own hair and they're going to put this thing on their head and show you how to put it over your mouth and your nose and they're going to tell you that the bag may not inflate, but there's going to be air flowing through there. Don't worry, it's working even if the bag doesn't look like it's full of anything. And of course, if you're traveling with a small child or somebody who needs assistance, what's the rule? Yeah, see, y'all have already done this. You put on your own mask first before you try to help somebody else, right? And you're thinking, okay, well, I mean, if we have to breathe a little bit of, you know, pumped in oxygen on the flight, well, that, that would be okay. And then they get a little more serious. And they think, well, in the unlikely event that we land in the water, and you're thinking, well, that's definitely not what I signed up for. They say, we've provided a life vest for you that looks unlike any other life vest that you've ever worn when you went skiing or wakeboarding or whatever it was that you did. In fact, this one you have to air up yourself. You know, just blow on it. And you're thinking, boy, I don't know. But they go through this entire routine and they tell you about how in the unlikely event of a water landing, this is how you put this on. This is how this goes over your head and the straps go around your back. And they talk about, here's where all of the exits are. This is where you came in the plane. This is where you can get out of the plane. They're showing you all of this stuff. And they're telling you about where you can locate the airplane safety card so that you can review all of this information for yourself. And you and I know that the flight attendants are up there sharing really valuable information, right? This is the kind of stuff that it's going to be really important to know if something goes bad wrong on this flight in the extremely unlikely event of an emergency and somebody in first service told me they've got to get on a flight tonight and I just scared them to death and I'm sorry about that <laughs> but the irony is that since an emergency is so highly unlikely and since most of us have seen this presentation and it's gone to waste because we haven't had to use the life vest and we haven't had to put on the oxygen mask and we haven't had to find the emergency exit or slide down the slide. Because we've heard it before, most of us assume that it won't happen to us. Most of the passengers on the plane have heard this presentation so many times and they've never had to use any of the emergency features and so the flight attendant's efforts go largely wasted when I was on my flight a couple of weeks ago, I looked around the cabin while the flight attendants were making this presentation, and there was virtually nobody paying attention to the demonstrations and the directions that the flight attendants were offering. I wondered if anybody knew how to use a seatbelt in here. Everybody was tuned into their phone, tuned into their book, tuned into the conversation with the person they'd just met sitting next to them. And so these flight attendants seemed like they were just speaking into the air, just speaking as if to an empty room. They put on the life vest very, you know, diligently. 
They faithfully buckled the seat belt. They pointed to the exits. They donned the oxygen masks themselves, but there didn't seem to be anybody listening. And that's how it goes with a story that you've heard time and time again. That's how it goes when you've heard this presentation over and over. I thought we've heard it before. We're familiar with how to put a seatbelt on. We've seen the demonstration of how the flotation device and the oxygen masks work. But that's just how it goes when you're trying to communicate something that people feel like they've heard before. In fact, the more times you hear a particular presentation, the more rote and routine it'll feel. Unless something happens where you actually have to use it, right? Unless something happens that completely changes your perspective. Well, today we're going to remember again this same old story. The old story that we've commemorated and remembered together every Easter that we've been together. The story that we remember every year and truthfully every time the church is gathered together. Because, and, and, and when we think about this story there are different ways to think about it because if we only think about this as a historical artifact, if we think about this story of resurrection as something that happened just 2,000 years ago and happened on the other side of the world and it's just something we're admiring from a distance, then we run the risk of letting this story become routine for us. But this morning, I want to invite you to consider the experience of one particular religious scholar from 2,000 years ago, whose life was forever changed, not because he heard and learned about the Jesus story, but because the Jesus story invaded his story. We're going to read one passage of Scripture together this morning. It's from the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're welcome to follow along with us on the Bible app on your phone if you like, but we're certainly going to put these verses up here on the screen so you can follow along too. And you need to know this about 2 Corinthians. You need to know that it's a letter that was written part of a back-and-forth conversation, part of a series of letters. In fact, there's a number of books in our Bible that were actually letters that we have just received or retained copies of over these years. But Paul of Tarsus was one of the earliest Christian missionaries, and he wrote this letter as a part of his ministry to a church that he had founded in Greece over 1,900 years ago. And Paul... Paul is somebody with worldwide recognition these days. Paul is the namesake for cities like Sao Paulo, Brazil, and St. Paul, Minnesota. He's a guy with an incredible story, a Jewish scholar who was actually commissioned to try to squash the rise of Christianity. You see, the Jewish leaders in his time, they thought that Christianity was a problem to be dealt with. They thought that it was like a cancer that was growing from within Judaism, and they didn't want to see it spread any further. And so Paul was assigned to arrest and punish those who were found to be teaching and spreading the story of Jesus. But in the middle of his years-long assignment to try to squash the church, Paul had his own supernatural encounter with the Lord. He was traveling one day, and suddenly a bright light and a voice from heaven stopped him in his tracks, and Jesus called him to be the first Christian missionary to go outside the bounds of Judaism. 
And Paul, of course, never thought of that for himself. He never That's the last thing that he would have ever imagined that he would do with his life. But he could not deny what he had experienced. His life's direction was forever changed that day. And he became just as fanatical about Christianity as he had previously been about Judaism. He spent the rest of his life traveling through southwestern Asia and southern Europe, and he was preaching and he was teaching and he was establishing church communities for all of these new believers that he had introduced to Jesus. And occasionally, after he wrapped up his work in one city and moved on to the next, occasionally he would hear word from friends who were traveling back and forth, and he would send a letter to encourage the churches where he had worked previously, and that's what 2 Corinthians is. It's a letter that Paul is writing to a group of Christians that he already knew, people that generally he introduced them to Jesus. And the passage we're reading in chapter 5 is in the middle of an extended passage where Paul's describing, explaining why he gets so passionate about the work that God has called him to do, why he gets so passionate about his ministry and his mission. He says even at times he appears kind of crazy to others because they just don't understand how he is constantly following the Spirit's lead. But here's what he says, beginning in chapter 5, and verse 14, where we read together, speaking about himself and his missionary partners, he says, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. We've come to this conclusion. He says, we've concluded that one died for the sake of all Therefore, all have died. Now, this is, there's some metaphor here, but Paul's saying, I have dedicated my life to this message that God loves humanity, God loves creation, God loves the world so much that God became one of us to rescue us by dying for our sakes. He says, my life is under Christ's control. And it's not controlled by fear of Christ. It's not controlled by obligation or debt to Christ. It's controlled by the love of Christ that continually is being poured into me. He talks about being controlled by Jesus' love for him, which is a totally different kind of control, isn't it? Love is the one power that really has transformative ability. And he talks about living in response to this love that Jesus has given to him. Paul says, I've come to understand that when Jesus died and was raised from the dead, something happened that had the power to reshape the entire direction of my life, to reshape my motivations and my ambitions. In fact, he, he, conclu he con uh, continues this thought in the next verse. He says in verse 15, Christ died for the sake of all so that those who are alive should live not for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised. And I want you to pay attention to the phrases there that I've highlighted, to the sections that I've highlighted, because I want you to see the argument that Paul is making. That Paul is saying there is more to the story, there is a bigger picture being referenced here when I talk about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He's saying Jesus came to do something bigger than to just rescue us from a punishment. Jesus came to rescue us from living aimlessly today. Jesus came to give us purpose and meaning for our lives now. Jesus came to keep us from living purposeless lives. He died so that we might be able to truly begin to live. 
And Paul says, this is the power of the story that has changed my life. This is the power of the story that has called me out of what I used to be passionate about, called me out of my former way of living and understanding and believing. This is the power of the story that has led me to change everything, to shift 180 degrees from trying to stop and persecute and destroy the church to now starting to begin churches and plant churches. Paul says, this is not just the story of somebody who was willingly, willing to die for somebody else, though that would be beautiful. This is a story about God giving us a part to play in a new story. This is about God casting us in roles that we were designed to live out. In other words, Jesus died. Jesus gave himself so that we might have something to live for. And that changed everything for Paul. It repurposed his life. It transformed his direction. It transformed the direction that he was going and the way that he perceived the world around him. In fact, he talks about this in verse 16, the very next verse. He says, so then, from this point on, we won't recognize people by human standards. Your translation may say, we don't view anybody else or we don't perceive anybody else from a human point of view. Even though we used to know Christ by human standards, that isn't how we know him now. So then, if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. The old things have gone away, and look, new things have arrived. Paul says, I'm seeing the world differently because of this story. I'm seeing people around me differently because of this story. You know, if you've ever worn glasses or contacts, you know how suddenly the world changes when the right lenses bring everything into focus, right? Paul says, I'm seeing everything differently because of the Jesus lenses that I'm wearing. Maybe you've been to a movie where the movie was being screened in 3D and you walked into the theater and they handed you those glasses and maybe the old, the old ones, they were like made out of cardboard and one side looked like it was a red lens and one side looked like it was a blue lens and you think, I don't want to wear these things. It's going to make the world look weird. But then you go inside the theater into that dark room and they start the movie and you put the glasses on and suddenly you experience the movie in a brand new way because of the lenses that you're looking through. Paul says, Jesus is inviting us to look at the world through his lens. He says, from now on, we don't look at anybody else around us from a worldly or human point of view. We see them from a spiritual perspective. Paul says, Jesus is inviting us to see the world differently because of this story. And so Paul says, I've stopped seeing the world in terms of us versus them. I've stopped seeing the world in terms of Jews versus Gentiles. I've stopped seeing the world in terms of Israelites versus Romans. I've stopped seeing the world in terms of men versus women. I've, started, I've stopped seeing the world in terms of good guys versus bad guys. I've stopped seeing the world in terms of who are my friends versus who are my enemies. He said, I've started to see the world through the lens and the perspective of Jesus' love. And it's making me look at everybody differently. He says, with these lenses on, I see past the external differences that keep people divided. I see past the human issues that keep us separated from one another. He says, with these lenses, I can see through the racial and cultural differences that seem to divide people. 
with these lenses over my eyes, looking through a Jesus lens, he says, I can see past the political and the philosophical disagreements. I can see through the distinctions that keep people from being able to see eye to eye. He says, with these lenses on, I'm now able to love and appreciate people that I didn't love and appreciate before. I'm able to honor and respect people that I didn't honor and respect before. He says, I can love and appreciate people who think different than I do, people who believe different than I do. I can respect and honor people who vote different than I do, people who speak different than I do, people who live different than I do. He says, when I have these Jesus lenses on, it makes me, when I see the distance between me and somebody else, it makes me want to close the gap. It makes me want to pull them in closer because I'm not seeing them from a worldly point of view. I'm not seeing them as the problem. I'm not seeing them as the other. I'm seeing them as part of God's story. I'm seeing them from a spiritual perspective. And Paul says this is the life-changing truth of our story. This is the life-changing truth of Easter, that we've been given new life so that we can share new life. We've been given something so that we could pass it on. We've been given a new perspective so that we could see the world like God sees the world. And I want to read the last four verses of this passage just in succession here and let you hear about how Paul describes the change that's happened inside of him. He says all of these new things, verse 18, chapter 5, all of these new things, these new perspectives, these new lenses are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. Paul says, I have an assignment. I have a job because of what God has done. In other words, verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not by counting people's sins against them. He says, when God looks at us, God's not looking at us and thinking about how everything about us is wrong. God's not looking at us and seeing the problems. God is looking at us through a different lens than what we used to use. And now Paul says, and now God has trusted us with this message of reconciliation. God has invited us to be part of sharing the news, of spreading this story. So we are ambassadors who represent Christ. God is negotiating with each of you, with all of humanity through us, and we beg you as Christ's representatives, be reconciled to God. Respond to the story. God caused the one, verse 21, God caused the one who didn't know sin to be sin for our sake so that through him we could become the righteousness of God. This is Paul telling you about his job description. This is Paul telling you about the assignment that he received, the assignment that he, the assignment that he accepted, the role that he was given as the result of a life-changing encounter that he had with the risen Jesus. And he says, now I've become a full-time ambassador. I work full-time for God trying to share this story. Can you imagine? I mean, think about it. You and I know what it's like to recommend things that we really enjoyed, right? I mean, you should go visit this business. You should buy this product. You should go see this movie. Don't miss it while it's still in the theaters. It's worth buying a ticket to. Go and make sure you and your family, take the family and go see this movie. Or go visit this restaurant. It was the best meal I ever had. You're really going to enjoy it. We know what it's like to recommend something that we've really enjoyed ourselves. But Paul's, Paul's talking about something that goes way beyond that. 
Paul's talking about an encounter with Jesus that caused him to change everything. It caused him to walk away from his former life, to walk away and abandon his former worldview. He had a new outlook, a new paradigm, a new motivation for every day, and it happened because the story became real to him. It's been 14 years now, but most of you probably remember some of the details of the story that has become known as the miracle on the Hudson. It was a Thursday morning in New York City, and there was a U.S. Airways plane that was flying out of LaGuardia and headed for Charlotte, North Carolina. And the flight took off, and things seemed to be going without incident for the first minute or so. But then after about a minute and a half or two, as they were crossing over Upper Manhattan, the plane struck a flock of Canada geese, pretty large birds. And both engines were immediately incapacitated, and the pilots had to instantly switch into a mode, a hurried process, where they were using all of their training, all of their experience, and all of the professional intuition that they had accumulated over thousands of hours of flight time to try to safeguard their passengers, also being mindful of the fact that they were flying over one of the most heavily populated areas in the world. Maybe you saw the movie that came out a few years later to tell this story, the movie that starred Tom Hanks in the role of Captain Chesley Sullenberger, or Sully for short. Sully was the captain that day. He was piloting this flight when it hit the flock of geese and lost power. He took the controls from the first officer, and he considered all of the options available to him for places where he could set the plane down, hoping initially that he might make it to an airport, but then deciding that that wasn't going to work. And so he needed to steer the glide path of this plane somewhere where it would do the least possible damage. And if you remember the story, you know that ultimately he told air traffic control, we're going to end up in the Hudson, the Hudson River, that river that runs along the west side of Manhattan. And he steered the plane out over the water, and he continued gliding along the river. It glided for almost four minutes. And they narrowly cleared the top of the George Washington Bridge, and moments before the plane hit the water, Sully's voice came over the intercom and advised the passengers and the crew to brace for impact. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like I wonder if all of them knew where to find the safety gear, the life vests, the seat cushions that doubled as flotation devices. I wondered if they had paid close attention to the flight attendant's presentation. Most of us that have heard this story have visualized for ourselves in our mind's eye what it would be like to be sitting in those airplane seats. We've imagined what it would be like to feel the sensation of the bird strike and the sudden loss of momentum as the engines sputtered out, to feel the plane making unexpected maneuvers and descending when it was supposed to be climbing. The plane glided for four minutes, and I'm sure that for all of those four minutes, it felt like time was standing still. But by the end of that four minutes, the plane, as it began to near the water and Sully came over the intercom and said, brace for impact, that plane touched down on the surface of the Hudson River, which was just a few degrees above freezing at that point. And miraculously, everybody was still alive. 
And in the next few minutes, everyone worked together and everybody cooperated and everybody helped each other get into life rafts or climb out on the wings of the plane. First responders started rushing to the area. Civilians in boats and ships and ferries started making their way to the scene and everybody got out safely. And at the end of the day, everybody went home to their families. The mayor of New York called the story the miracle on the Hudson. It was the first time in aviation history that a commercial airliner like this had landed in water and everybody had lived to tell the tale. But for those who were on the plane, this was more than just an incident that happened on that one day and then came to an end. For those who were on the plane, this was more than just a miraculous day. For those who were on the plane, it was the beginning of a new way of seeing the world. It was the beginning of a new way of living. In fact, I want to show you the, just the testament that one particular passenger offered. A few days after this accident happened, the CBS News gathered a group of the passengers who were willing to be a part of this TV interview, and they also had the flight crew and the pilots that were sitting there, and it was the first time that these two groups had had a chance to be in the same room and process everything that was going on. And I'll, It's a long interview, but I want to show you about 30 seconds and let you just hear about how one particular passenger says, his behavior has changed. Let's watch this together. Dave, take me inside the plane. Take me inside as this plane impacts on the water. What, what was going on inside? It was extremely calm. Like they said, uh, it was stone quiet in there, which was amazing to me because I don't think anybody cross-referenced what was going on. And I think that was a saving grace. And I just want to say, I admire your skills, but I honor the way you managed your state. And now I do listen to the flight attendants every flight. Yes. I know exactly where everything is. Yes. I know exactly where the exits are. And I know where that life, the life preserver is. Man, man. I'm proud of him for being willing to get on a plane again. But did you hear what the difference it made for him that he, he talked about? He said, now every time I get on a plane, he said, I pay attention. He said, I listen to what the flight attendant has to say. And I'm clocking where the exits are, and I'm making sure that I've got a life vest that's underneath my seat, and I'm making sure that everything checks out because I want to be aware of how to get out of this thing, and I want to be aware of what's going to be necessary for me to not only make it out myself, but to help other people around me. This changed the way he encounters and engages with the world. It changes the way he sees everything. He'd heard that, he'd probably heard that flight attendant spiel, the pre-flight safety briefing, dozens if not hundreds of times before but when the story engulfed his story when something happened that changed his perspective suddenly those details mattered more suddenly that presentation meant more to him than it ever had before and if you were to listen to the rest of that interview with all of those passengers, they would tell you that they all got a little bit different perspective or a lot different perspective that they had a new lease on life that every one of them now thinks of their life in terms of the time before Flight 1549 and the time after Flight 1549, the day that everything changed. And nowadays, that airplane, having been salvaged off the riverbed there in New York, it was transported to an aviation museum in North Carolina. And all of those passengers, they host annual gatherings, and they get together every year to reunite with each other 
And they tell stories about how in the boarding process, as they made small talk with each other, many of them thought, boy, I don't have anything in common with the person I'm sitting next to. Somebody would be reading the newspaper and reading a story about politics, and they might exchange a couple of comments about it, and they thought, I don't have anything in common with these people. We're different. And then the, then the accident happened, and now they're all family. Now they're inseparable. They can't imagine not staying in touch with one another. They have a lasting bond together. And their story changed because their story was impacted by a bigger story. And that's our story. That's what this gathering is about for us. As we get together on Easter, it would be possible it would be easy, it would be natural for us to retell the events of the final week of Jesus' life, the Passion Week and the, the Last Supper and the triumphal entry, the arrest, the trials, the crucifixion, and then the resurrection. And it's a beautiful story and it's an inspiring story and it's a miraculous story, but if we only study it as an artifact, if we only study it as something that happened 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world but doesn't really pertain to our life today, then it'll become routine for us. It'll become rote like that safety briefing. But if we allow this story to impact the story that we're living, if we start to recognize that this story of death and resurrection is actually meant to be prescriptive for us. That we have been called to be the people who lay down our old way of thinking and seeing and living, who put to death our old selves with its self-centered ambitions and motivations and drive. That we've been called to be the people who put that down so that Jesus can raise us to new life to raise us to something new, a new way of seeing and engaging the world, a new way of relating to one another, a new way of engaging the differences that exist between us and the divides that separate us. If we begin to see that Jesus' resurrection was the first of many that God has planned, if we begin to see that the story we're reading has a place for us in it, and it changes everything. It changes this story for us because it changes who we are. It changes how we relate. It changes what we care about. It changes us as a community. It changes our perspective. And so that's the invitation for Easter, is that you would allow this story to change your perspective, not just about the Bible, not just about ancient history, but that you would let this story change your perspective about your Monday, change your perspective about your relationships, change your perspective about those that disagree with you, change your perspective about the way you see the world. This story, by God's grace, is our story. And I want you to be able to play your part in it.